A highly successful businessman was once asked to make a substantial donation toward an urgent charity appeal. The businessman listened to the case presented, then said, well, I can understand why you approached me. Yes, I have a lot of money and yours is an important cause. But are you aware that I have a lot of calls upon my money? Do you know that my mother needs 24 hours nursing care? Uh, no, we didn't, came the reply. Did you know my sister is struggling to raise a family of eight on her own? No, we didn't, came the reply again. Did you know I have one son in a drug rehab clinic and another doing voluntary work overseas? No, we didn't. Well, if I don't give them a cent, what makes you think I'll give it to you? Are you appalled? But that was exactly the attitude that that rich man in Jesus' parable had. It's all mine. I get to use it, no one else. Jesus told that parable when someone wanted to get him to tell the brother to give him a portion of the father's property. In those days, teachers or rabbis were more often than not asked to arbitrate these kind of issues among the people. But the thing is, the way Luke records it for us, it wasn't about arbitration. What this guy was trying to do was to get Jesus on his side and to tell the brother, give him that portion of the property. It was about using Jesus to get possession for himself. Jesus saw through it and refused to get involved, but instead, he used this opportunity to teach his disciples and the crowd about greed and material possessions. Perhaps he saw what was in the man's heart and what this man was really getting at. Perhaps he saw if this attitude continued where it would lead. If you remember, we were talking about Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, final journey, and he's preparing his disciples. In uh, the previous section, which we looked at last week, it ended with Jesus telling his disciples, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. In other words, the disciples were going to be in for a tough time in the coming days and weeks and months and years after Jesus had returned to the Father. And so Jesus was preparing them for that time. And when such times come, preoccupation with material goods 
preoccupation with amassing property will only cause downfall. It will be of no help at all. And so for the disciples, you had to get that perspective right about priorities, about the place of material possessions in our lives. Note that material possessions are not all bad. They are neutral. And yes, God does give them to us, as we will see uh, Jesus saying later on. But what kind of place does it take in our lives? That is the main issue here. And so Jesus is saying, not just for the disciples, but for us too, if we are to live in kingdom ways, whether or not we face hostility for our faith, then we will need to get our attitudes to material possessions straight. If you look at that rich man, in some sense, he was not entirely a fool. Well, definitely not by the world's standards, being wealthy and so on. The world looks up to people like that. But in many ways, he was prudent in building barns to store his crop. Now, that's prudent because if he didn't build barns, his crops would be lying outside and they would go to waste. That's not wise either from God's perspective. And so building the barns was fine. And if you remember way back, even Joseph built silos and barns and storehouses for that bumper crop over seven years that God gave in order to help people with famine. And that is where the difference lies because the foolishness in this man came when he looked at that grain and saw it all as belonging to him to serve only his own needs. Some people might ask, why not? After all, land was his, he grew the crops. So, yeah, it's his to enjoy. But read again carefully, it says, the ground produced a good crop, not the man produced a good crop. And when Luke records things like that in that way, it points to the fact that God is at work. And so good harvests ultimately come from God. In those days, you didn't have chemicals and such to enhance the soil. But even so, growth and crops, successful crops, successful harvests comes from God. Yes, the man probably had to do work on the soil, tilling it, making it ready, planting the seed. But ultimately, the growth and the success of that crop was dependent on rain and sunshine that God would send. And growth was ultimately given by God. When the scriptures call someone a fool, it refers to a person 
who leaves God out of their lives entirely, who does not consider God or God's ways in their hearts or in the way they live. And so you have Psalm chapter 14, verse 1, Psalm chapter 53, Psalm 53 and verse 1 saying, Fools say in their hearts, there is no God. And if you read Proverbs, you will find this uh, inferred over and over again. Even if they did believe in God, the fool does not care about God's presence in their lives. They didn't care about living God's ways. And so it was most likely lip service when they say, yeah, I believe in God. And so this rich man was the same way. And that's why God calls him a fool. It was all about I, me, and my. And look at that one thought he had about what to do with the crops. Within that one thought, there were numerous times when the word I or me or my came up. No God in there. This is not the first time that Jesus tells a parable about wealth or teaches the danger of greed and amassing possessions for oneself. We will find it over again. We saw it a previous time. It's coming up now, and it will come up again. The thing is this. When God blesses us, he blesses us so that others may also be blessed. That's what being God's people is about. That's one of the things that being God's people is about. We are blessed to bless others. Right from the very beginning, when God blessed Abraham, the command was, I bless you, you bless others. Through Abraham, the nations will be blessed. The rich man, on the other hand, was keeping it all to himself. And that's the way the world works. Gain as much as you can, save as much as you can, then spend as much as you can on yourself. In fact, there are bumper stickers that say, he who dies with the most toys wins. But do we really? The rich man and people who subscribe to that philosophy, he who dies with the most toys wins, reckon without God. We never know when our lives will end. Not the exact moment, never. We don't even know what will happen to us tomorrow if we are honest about it. We can plan, and most times, we, those plans kind of come about. Um, I have a list of things I want to do in the office tomorrow, and so I go in, they get done, most times. But there are times, but we will never know whether we actually get to do them until we get through them. Life is that uncertain. And God is the only one who knows exactly what will take place in the next moment 
tonight, an hour later, or tomorrow, or the next day, or the next week. And to live without consideration of that, to plan things without making space for God in our lives is foolishness. Because then what is going to happen is we will expect things to turn out the way we plan them and we will end up worrying and we will end up being anxious to make sure everything is under our control in order for them to turn out exactly what we've planned. And so the rich man's plans to enjoy this gain for many years, that was what he had planned. Sit back, enjoy, eat, drink, be merry, take life easy. I can retire for the rest of my life. That's essentially what he was saying. I'm set for the rest of my life. But guess what? God is saying, uh-uh, tonight, your soul will be required of you. We can't plan our departures from this life. Our lives are completely in God's hands, whether we believe God or not, because He is the Creator who gives us life and has the power. He's the only one who has the power to take life from us. And so Jesus says the rich, the fool, or this rich man was not rich towards God. He was trying to be rich to himself. He thought he was being rich to himself, but it brings emptiness and it ends in death. Having said that, we recognize that we have needs. Food and clothing, those are our very basic needs. And so Jesus addresses these needs. How many of us have been in that situation where we have to think about when's the next meal, what we're going to cook, whether it's for family or whether it's for ourselves to go out and eat and so on? And uh, there are times when we kind of run out of ideas and we go, oh dear, you know, if I don't come up with any ideas, my family doesn't get to eat. And so we, we kind of mull over it and we kind of crank our brains trying to figure out what to eat. On one hand, that's legitimate, but if we go overboard and we sweat it out, and we get anxious about it, our blood pressure goes up, our hearts get palpitations when we think about it. That's worrying, that's extreme. But there are also those who worry about where the next meal is coming from, not because they can't think, but because they may not have the means. And that was what most of the crowd who listened to Jesus, that was the place they were at. And so Jesus gives them God's perspective on supply for our needs and on wealth. God is our creator. That's the first thing we need to get straight. 
Our physical needs have been inbuilt as God created us. And if that is true, which it is, then doesn't it follow that God will know exactly how much we need and when we need it? Food and clothing. If you remember last week, we looked at sparrows. Jesus used them to illustrate God's care for us. The smallest of birds worth so little, yet God is mindful of every little one of them. Now Jesus talks about birds as well, a bigger bird, a raven. A raven is much bigger than a crow. The raven was on the list of unclean animals for the Jews. They could not eat them. The crows, the ravens are there. They don't sow, they don't reap like the rich man did. They don't have barns like the rich man built. But even so, God provides for them. God takes care of them. And Jesus says, look, you are of much more value than ravens. Unsaid, but known is the fact that God, our Creator, breathed His own breath into us to give us life. Then Jesus goes on to another example, lilies. They grow, they stay in their place, and they look pretty. And it's God who gives them the colours in which they're dressed. And those colour combinations take a good look at wildflowers. Don't look at cultivated flowers. Yes, God gives them growth as well. But flowers that grow wild, take a good look at them when you next pass on the grass verge on the road. Look at their colours. Brilliant. And some of them so delicate. No tailor can match that kind of colour. No dyeing company, dyeing cloths in the different colours can match the brilliance of those colours. Even the richest known king, Jesus said, Solomon, who had all that wealth in the world to command various colours of cloth and all to be printed for him, could not compare with the beauty of these flowers. And remember, these flowers don't last long. A day, two days, a week at most perhaps. But yet, God takes care of them down to the minutest detail. You know, there, I have some friends who kind of say, ha, flowers are don't buy la, they'll fade after some time. You know, they're there for a while and they're gone, but God takes meticulous care in dressing them up beautifully. How much more would God take care of you and me, human beings, the crown of his creation, so to speak? It's pretty easy to get tangled up in these things and have them occupy our minds. And when they do, they 
edge out the awareness of God. They edge out our attention to God's presence in our lives. Worry puts the object of our worry right in front and center so that our thoughts, our emotions all get wrapped up in it and God is then edged out of our focus and our sight. James Bryan Smith in his book, The Good and Beautiful Life, defines worry this way. Worry is a disproportionate level of concern based on an inappropriate measure of fear. Worry comes from fear. Fear that there will be a lack, fear that things will not turn out the way we want them to. And sometimes these fears come from a previous experience we've had. So people who have grown up in poverty tend to not want to let go of things they have. It does happen and God sees them. God does not condemn but God says, trust me. Trust me. Yes, you have known lack when you were younger, but now that you know me, trust me. Because in my word, I say to you, I will provide. And when we take that step to turn around and let go to God, we see his provision. The culture we live in fuels those kind of fears. The more, the better. Otherwise, you won't have it anymore. You know how sales are? Limited stock only. And sometimes we do that too. But the main focus is really being in control of things in our lives and having the good life as we define it as the world plans it. But the reality is that there are so many things we cannot control. And most times, these are the things that cause us worry. I want to say this also, that there is a difference between being concerned about our needs and worrying about our needs. So if you remember, worrying is a disproportionate level of concern based on inappropriate measure of fear. So for something small, our worry kind of gets us all tangled up, our blood pressure goes up and so on. We are right to be concerned about food and clothing. There are some people who look at this a passage like this, this and the one in Matthew, and think that Jesus calling us not to worry for our needs will, and will provide. They think that that's equivalent to just sitting back and God will drop things in our, into our lap that... Uh, what's a delivery company, delivery, eat, or whatever, will come to our doorstep without being called and deliver food to us. Not true. You know, when Jesus says the birds do not reap or sow or gather into storehouses and barns, but do you realize how hard 
birds have to work for their food. We all know the saying, I think, the early bird gets the worm. The early bird gets up, goes out, pecks on the ground, digs the ground, and gets the worm. The worms don't drop into the nest. It's only the nestlings, and even then, the parents, the mother bird, the father bird, has to go peck on the ground, look for worms, bring it to them, and feed them. But once they're ready to fly, the parents break the nest, push them out of the nest, and they have to fend for themselves. And so, God makes sure that there is food for the birds, yes, but you don't see the birds going and wringing their wings and worry about whether there's food or not. They go and they do what they're created to do, pecking the ground, digging the ground, and they find the food because God has provided. And so Jesus says, people of the kingdom do not need to worry because God cares for them. And Jesus asks very pointedly, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And if you go onto the internet and look at some research reports from reputable hospitals, you will find that anxiety and worry actually shortens your lifespan. So worrying does not increase your lifespan. In fact, it does the opposite to your lifespan. Worrying, anxiety bring increased blood pressure, increased risk of stroke. And that's the way of the world, really, to worry. And sometimes we say worry ourselves sick. To to make sure that things are within our control. But the truth is that there is so much that is unexpected that we cannot control. The word translated and the world runs after these things, the pagan world runs after these things, Jesus says. That word translated run intensively means to demand or to crave these things. That's a very intense kind of feeling. But that's not the way with God's people. And so the cure to all this worrying is to switch our focus from the object of worry to focusing on God's kingdom. And that's why Jesus is saying, seek first God's kingdom. All these things will fall into place. You know, it's interesting that Jesus calls the, those who are listening to him, do not be afraid, little flock. Sheep are very easily scared. You run near them, they scatter. And so he says, don't be afraid. Jesus reassures them that God, their father, the one who knows them by name and cares for them is pleased to give them that ki God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is God's gracious rule over God's governance over his people. We can let go of what we 
own or rather hold what we own with open hands and use these resources to help the poor. That's called investment in God's kingdom. And John Wesley put it this way. Earlier I said the world's ways is gain as much as you can, save as much as you can, and spend as much as you can on yourself. John Wesley said this, gain as much as you can, save as much as you can, give away as much as you can. Let me go back to James Bryan Smith again in that book I mentioned earlier. He has a chapter on these sayings of Jesus, but taken from Matthew. And this is how he defines seeking God's kingdom first. It is about making the reality and principles of God's kingdom our first and primary concern. So when we seek God's kingdom first, it means that this reality or the truth that God is ruler over all, the principles of the kingdom, love God, love neighbor, righteousness, peace, and joy, these all come first for us. And that means we keep our eyes open to see what God is up to around us. Those who have gone through the course called Experiencing God will learn that this is the first principle, that God is always at work around us. It doesn't mean that God is always doing spectacular stuff. Sometimes when we say God is at work, we think God miraculously heals, God turns water into wine, stops the water so that we can cross uh, the stream or whatever it is. That's the more spectacular stuff. But in the ordinary course of our day, God is present. God is present in every moment of our life situations, however ordinary they may be. Seeking God's kingdom first also means that when trials come, we face them with the trust that God will see us through. Sometimes God removes us from the trial or the trial from us. Most times when trials come, God says, take my hand and I will take you through. God promises to never fail us nor forsake us. It may not be in ways we expect or we want, but God has our interests at heart and will be at work in them. And so when we talk about being rich towards God, that Jesus said, it is about making God's kingdom our primary concern. It is about trusting God. The second thing about being rich toward God is to invest in the things that are in God's heart. And we need to look to God for that, to know 
what comes as God's deepest desire? Of course, there is God's desire that all men be saved. And that is why we share the love of God with them. But there is also the concern to do what is good and right and just. God is a just God, and God wants to see justice. We can ask why doesn't God intervene and bring about justice? But that would not, that would kind of do away with human choice. And so God calls us who are his people to work for justice, to work for what is righteous, to work to alleviate things like poverty, to extend love and care to those in need. We said earlier today is Social Concerns Sunday, and you've heard from Angela about the work being done in the McCallum area. And I'm thankful for those who have responded to that call, but more helpers are needed. And so if you sense that God is calling you, it is a call to be rich towards God and invest in his kingdom. And these are things that are worth investing in, not just in the McCallum area, but there are various ministries that go on that reach out to people. Our reading program for students in MBS who are poor in their English as well. The visits to the homes because there are people there whom their families have abandoned and not bother to go visit. These are things worth worth investing in, in contrast to material possessions which will eventually wear out, which will get stolen or even eaten up by insects and so on. God's heart is for justice to be done. At our two morning services, the guest speaker, Mr. Rama Ramanathan, shared how John Wesley a strong stand in his ministry for what is right and just and good. And if you read, how many of us have read something of John Wesley? Some. How many of you have read his biography, story of his life? Some. If you read, you would find that when, after his heart was warm, in fact, even before he read the Bible, he saw God's call visiting the sick in prison, helping the poor. He set up orphanages for children. He started Sunday school. Sunday school isn't like our Sunday school now in those days. Sunday school was a proper school where he taught children to read and write and arithmetic because these children worked in sweatshops Monday to Saturday. Sunday was their only day off. And so that was the only day who could get them, gather them, sit them down, and teach them so that they could become literate. This morning, Mr. Rama focused on 
John Wesley's campaign to get people not to put sugar in their tea. The reason is this. Sugar in those days was produced by slave labor. And slaves were treated horribly, horrendous. You can find uh, write-ups, you can find records of all that happened. This issue of slavery affected John Wesley very deeply. First, in the time that he was in America, in Georgia, until the time he came back to England and onwards, and he was on the side of justice, speaking up against this, supporting those who were fighting this right until the end of his days. Several days before his death at 88, he wrote a letter to William Wilberforce. How many of you know William Wilberforce? Oh, I've heard that name. Some. He was the foremost person who worked to abolish slavery in England. It took many years before the final act of freeing slaves came. So John Wesley, before he died, wrote a letter to William Wilberforce to encourage him to keep on going. He began the letter with, do not be weary of well-doing. And in this case, it referred to that fight against slavery. For us today, what would it mean for us to stand for what is just and right and good? Some of the things we can do, come join the candlelight vigil at the Esplanade the first Sunday of every month where we stand and say that taking people off the streets, abduction is wrong. In Penang, it is the first Sunday of every month at 8 p.m. This is social action and advocacy. We are pretty good at social concerns, visiting nursing homes, uh, visiting the poor, helping, and that is good. We need to take this one step further to speak for those who cannot speak. We need to do both because God's heart is as much in putting things right as it is and bringing change in good ways as it is for people to come to God and experience God's love. Being rich toward God is a purse that will not wear out. Jesus tells us, sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. And that is what true wealth is about, real treasure, pursuing God's heart, being rich towards him to do the things that are on his heart. And the principle about treasure is this. Whatever we place value in is our treasure. And that is where our heart will be. It comes, the treasure comes first, and our heart follows. 
not the other way around. All of us have treasures. There's, there's not a person who does not have something they don't treasure. It's only a question of what is it that we treasure. And someone has said, tell me what the most time you think you spend thinking of and I'll tell you where your heart is. The only question that is there is what kind of treasure we have, whether they are treasures that will wear out and decay or treasures that are eternal, treasures that we don't really see now. But when we come to that day, face to face with God, he will open up the chest that is ours and say, that's your treasure. Let us pray.